Good morning. Happy Easter. Thanks for joining us, and thanks for those of you who are online. We're glad you're with us as well. I have to look in the camera. Hi. Well, it's a good morning to rejoice. It's Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. And today's a day when we celebrate the fact that death was not able to conquer Christ our Lord, but that he, that he rose bodily from the tomb on a Sunday morning like this one many years ago now. On this day Christ arose, the grave is defeated, the sin that kept us from God is wiped away, and the eternal and new life of Christ makes a home in us. And so there's a traditional call and response, or I say the phrase, Alleluia, Christ is risen, and you say, Alleluia. All right, we'll do it one more time. Alleluia, Christ is risen. Alleluia. You throw an alleluia in the end there just for fun, okay? It means praise the Lord. Uh, for the past months, you'll know, we've been journeying together through the book of First John. And when we planned this series, I noted with some pleasure that the passage that aligned with Easter Sunday was eminently suited for the occasion. And so the whole series has been building towards today. And we get to read the passage together now in light of the Feast of Christ's Resurrection. So 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 12 will be up on the screen. Would you please stand with me for the reading of the word this morning? I'll read from my Bible. You can follow along on the screen. John writes, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. This is God's word for today. Please be seated. I want to organize what I say to you this morning around the words of verse 5. We'll put it up right now. 1 John 5, 5. Who is the one who overcomes the world? but he who believes that Jesus is the Christ. Who is the one who overcomes? And I believe that overcoming is the big idea that holds the passage together. And more than that even, I believe that overcoming and being an overcomer is what John wants for the people who abide in Christ. And perhaps this might be a helpful summary for the whole book of 1 John. So here's the summary of 1 John. I want you to abide so that you can overcome. I want you to abide, John says, so that you can overcome the world. This is the reason why he's written his letter. He wants, to cling to, wants us to cling to the love of Christ, to live within the love of God, to thrive within the life of the new community of God's people so that we can be a people who overcome the world. 
Uh, maybe even to make this even more catchy, he might have said something like, abide to survive. And if maybe we were in the t-shirt business, that'd be a cool slogan, abide to survive. We could sell them and make money. Oh, no, maybe that's not the joke. Anyway, so in light of the passage, in light of this business of overcoming, I think there's two things for us to unpack. The first is to spend a few moments with the idea of overcoming. What does it mean to overcome? And the second is to spend a longer time explaining how John wants us to be an overcoming people. So what does it mean to overcome? Let's look again at 1 John 5, 5. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Christ? Who's the one who overcomes the world? What does the word mean? Well, in Greek, it's a lovely word. It's the word hanikon. It's kind of nice to say. And it means one, the, the conquering one. You probably are actually familiar with the word uh, nikao. It's where we get the name Nicholas or Nick. It means victory. So any of you are named Nick, your name means winner. And that's kind of fun. Uh, but in the Greek, it's actually tied to the name, name of the goddess of victory. Does anyone know the name of the goddess of victory? Her name is Nike. Okay, and uh, Nike's logo is the swoop of the goddess of victory coming down upon you. Some of you didn't know you were wearing pagan gods on your feet all the time. Uh, John in chapter 5 is not referencing the goddess, it's just the word for conqueror. It's the same word and it's just adopted in both places. He's using the word that means to conquer, to defeat, to overcome, to win. So we can play with the translation of verse 5 just a little. Who is the one who beats the world? Who is the one who conquers the world? Who is the one who defeats the world? Who's the winner in the world? And the answer in each case is the one who believes that Jesus is the Christ. This is the way to win. So the idea of conquest raises some questions, namely, what is it we're overcoming? What are we winning against in this? Well, in view of 1 John, I think there's three kind of big things at play. There may be more. The first thing we overcome is that we overcome the things of the world that take us away from abiding in God's love. This has been our theme throughout these weeks. We overcome the things of the world that take us out of that state of abiding in God's love. In fact, explicitly, this is the lesson of 1 John 2, 15 through 17, where John said, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever." And part of the message is that we are conquering those distractions, those things that pull us away from the love of God. So we become victors over those aspects of the world. Second, we overcome false teaching and false testimony. Uh, this, the presence of false teachers appears to have motivated the writing of the whole book. There were people messing with John's church, and he was writing to correct this problem. And we are living in the end times, and false teachers are a characteristic feature of the end times, and John invites us to conquer the false teaching as well. This is where he wants us to overcome. And third, and most provocatively in the passage itself today, John wants us to overcome death itself. I mean, death is the consequence of our alienation from God. It's what happens when we get removed from God's life. It's what happens when we stop abiding in his faithfulness. And this is the actual note on which today's passage ends, verses 11 and 12. And the testimony is this, John writes, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. The eternal life conquers the death about us. This is overcoming death itself. So John, John our pastor, wants us to be conquerors, and he wants us to conquer the things that take us out of God's love false teaching that takes us out of God's love, and to share in the life of Christ that conquers death itself. 
These are the specific victories that John wants us to share with him, places where we are invited to be winners, okay? This is winners, conquerors, victors. You can pick your word. However, John's instruction gets even more specific. In fact, in the passage, I think he offers three complementary paths to becoming a conqueror, an overcomer. So I want to turn our attention to those three paths now. How do we become overcomers? Well, way number one is quite explicit. Number one, we conquer by believing. We conquer by believing. Look again one more time at verse 5. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Christ? Well, there you have it, right there at the front, front loaded in the passage. The first step to becoming an overcomer is to believe. And this believing, as I see it, actually has two directions. The believing is divided into two parts. The first direction of believing is to believe that And the second direction of believing is to believe with, okay? So it divides into two parts. There's a believing that and there's a believing with. And we have to kind of understand both. Believing that is the business of believing certain things about Jesus. And John lists several of them in the passage and throughout 1 John. We believe that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. Earlier, that he came in the flesh. There are some that's that are listed. And actually, there are quite a list of things that fall under the heading of believe that. We believe that Jesus came in the flesh. We believe that he was born of the Virgin Mary, that he was anointed as Israel's king, that he performed miracles, that he taught, that he called disciples as witnesses to his work, that he was betrayed by his own people, that he died on a Roman cross, that he rose bodily and physically back to life on the third day, that he ascended into heaven in power, and that he is returning bodily in power to judge the living and the dead. That's a whole lot of that's that we believe. But the that's of belief are only half the story. Because alongside, and indeed inseparable from the list of that's, is the idea that we believe with. Now, one of the many errors of individualism that kind of pervade our world is the idea that your faith is purely personal, individual, private, a burden you carry alone or not at all. But according to John and according to the whole New Testament, faith is always something carried in a community. And I think this is going on in our passage today. So when we look at 1 John 5, verses 6 through 9, and this is a complex passage, but I hope to explain it for us together in a moment. John writes this, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. Now, as I said, I do think it's complex, but it becomes a little bit clearer if we can recall some of the practices of offering testimony in the Old Testament. Remember, all criminal matters in the ancient world are settled by human testimony. It's always oral testimony that determines things. They don't have forensic evidence at that point. So we're dealing with what people say as evidence for things. Um, and if one, it was one person's word against another, in the Bible, recognizing the importance of establishing testimony sets out quite a few rules for how to imagine them, like the ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness. It's not about telling fibs to your parents. It's about standing in court and lying when you're supposed to give, you're giving testimony about somebody's life. It's life or death. If you lie in that situation, what's the consequence? Well, it's bad. 
<laughs> you can't do it. You can't tell lies when you're giving formal testimony. That's what the ninth commandment is about. And the clearest expression is actually in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 19.15 says this, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. So if you're going to deal with somebody in a criminal matter, you never take one voice for it. You've got to have two or three voices. These are rules for testimony in the ancient world. People have to see what's happened. And so Hebrew law requires two witnesses to validate a matter, two pieces of oral testimony. And actually, if you've ever wondered why Jesus sent the disciples out two by two, the reason is here from Deuteronomy 19. It's so the pair of disciples can pass judgments on the cities that don't listen to Jesus' message. It's not about having a buddy-buddy. It's about having a witness to condemn. Yeah, I guess it got a little more serious, didn't it? Um, so Jesus sends them out two by two in this. And also, I'll throw this out there, when Jesus says, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, then I am with them, it's not about prayer meetings. It's about excommunication. Okay? That's how many people you need to kick somebody out of the community. Anyway, I'll just leave that. You can think about that. Next time someone says it, you can... There, there you go. That's good for you. So we've got Old Testament practices about witnesses in the Bible. And here, in 1 John 5, 7, he says there are three that testify. So in this passage, let's look again at 5, 6 through 9. We have this middle passage right here. And the point I said, he's got three that testify. This is not one witness, not two witnesses, but John has summoned three witnesses. So in terms of biblical witnesses, he's got an overabundance of evidence for the situation. But if you look closely, he doesn't just list three witnesses. I actually think he lists five witnesses. So the next slide is going to highlight these things for us. He says the three, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And then he's got a couple more he throws in there. The next slide goes up for this one. The one who came by the power. And then the last one is we who received the testimony. So he's got five witnesses listed here. Jesus, the one who came in power. And with Jesus, he lists uh, the Holy Spirit testifies, the Spirit living in us, moving and speaking. And then he lists the water, which I believe is the water of baptism. So that's John the Baptist in the whole Old Testament testifying to Jesus. And then the blood, which is the work of Christ on the cross, which is a public event that people saw. That's a fourth witness. And then we, who've received this testimony and live in the community, become a fifth witness. In terms of like ancient law courts, he's winning. He's overcoming all the obstacles in this moment. He's got all the testimony he requires. Now, my point in going through this is this. There are lots of things we are asked to believe, but those beliefs never happen apart from the community that testifies them. We believe as a community. We believe in a community of witnesses. John invites us into this public place, this public space of believing along with these other witnesses, not believing on our own. I'm going to give a brief pastoral aside. I think sometimes there are people in the church, and I don't think, I know there are people who struggle with one or more of the believe that's. And there's some point of doctrine that seems to stand between you and full acceptance of the Christian faith. And if that's you this morning, I want to invite you to step into the width of believing. You don't have to have it all figured out, but you can walk with us and let us have faith for you and let us have faith in a community. You don't have to have all the that's figured out to believe with a church community. And we can figure it out over time. Okay, conquering by believing. Second way we conquer is by receiving. We conquer by receiving. This shows up for me in verse 10 of our passage today. The one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony 
that God has given concerning his son. I think what John's on about is this, that when we believe something happens to us, something actually happens in us. We believe, and then God's spirit enters into us and dwells within us. And that's what John goes on to say in the very next verse, verse 11. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Because of belief in Christ, there is eternal life in us. We have received something, and this eternal life itself testifies to the truth of Christ. Now, this might be a little confusing, so allow me to draw um, clarity from something Paul says in Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. Paul writes this, In him, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now, buried within this little passage, there are actually three very clear verbs in Greek, three action words. And the first one is this word uh, listening, which is having heard, past tense. And the second is the word believed. And the third is the verb sealed. So having heard, you believed and were sealed. And these verbs describe the process of coming to faith. So the first is having heard. You hear the good news about Jesus, the testimony of the church, the testimony of the spirit, the water and the blood. But hearing these things is different from believing them, which I think we all intuitively understand. It's not like people hear the gospel message and automatically believe, as if we could drive a car down the road with a megaphone and preach the gospel, and everyone who heard it was suddenly had faith. You know it's different. They hear it doesn't mean they've believed it. And so that's the second step, is we hear it, and then we have to receive it. We have to assent to it. We have to claim it for ourselves. And maybe that's some ways to think about believing, that believing is a yes of the heart. But it's also a claim, I want this, I want this for myself. And believing is to reach out to what God has offered to you and accept it. When we make that ascent, we call it believing, we get sealed by the Holy Ghost. God sends his spirit to dwell within us, and so there's this three-step process. You hear, then you ascent, and then you're sealed. So what does it mean to be sealed by the spirit? I think it means two things. First, it means that we have the spirit as a deposit. The Spirit as a deposit within us. So Christ rose from the grave, and the power that rose him from the grave is the Holy Spirit. And as a result, a touch, a promise of that resurrection power, seed money of the resurrection now lives within us. So a bit of that resurrection power has been planted in you when you believed in Christ. Second, to have the seal of the Spirit means we have the Spirit as legal assurance That may sound not terribly comforting, but let me try and explain it. Christ has bought us as his own, and he signed the legal bill with a stamp and seal of ownership, making it his his official. So the Holy Spirit is the notary public of the kingdom of God. He shows up and makes things official. And that's part of what it means to be sealed. So when we're a believing people, this makes us a receiving people. We believe in Christ, we believe with the church, and as a consequence of our belief, something that follows right on the heels of that belief, we receive the Holy Spirit as this dual deposit, both as promise of power and as legal assurance. And for John, having received the Spirit makes you and me fellow testimonies to the work of Christ. And to that list of five testimonies, we get added as well. There's Christ himself, there's the water of baptism, there's the blood of his cross, there's the Holy Spirit in the church, and there's the we who testify, and then we get added to that. And so each additional person added to faith becomes an additional testimony to the work of Christ, which means we're in the billions of witnesses at this point. 
expands exponentially. Now, I want to remind you that this is actually part of the central message of 1 John. I spoke about this right at the very beginning. When we confess Christ, when we speak the truth about God, the unseen God becomes visible in our midst. We align with the truth, and God's truth becomes manifest in our standing in the truth of Christ, makes Christ visible to our world. And he does this by the power of the indwelling spirit that we receive when we believe. Okay, number three, third way to conquer is by keeping. We conquer by keeping. Look with me at verses 2 through 5 of our passage. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God is overcome, overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So if you want to overcome, John says pretty explicitly, keep the commandments. And what are the commandments he has in mind for John throughout his correspondence and drawing from our New Testament? It's that what Jesus summarized as the greatest commandment. So I'll remind you of the passage. It's from Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 31. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's being tested by people. They're starting to ask questions. And a faithful scribe, actually a pretty good guy, comes up and says, all right, what's the greatest commandment? So here it says, Mark 12. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, Jesus and these other guys, and recognizing that Jesus had answered well, asked him. So he thought, this guy gives good answers. I'll ask my question. And he doesn't ask because he wants to pick a fight with Jesus. He asks because he wants to know the answer. And this is why he gets a good answer. It's a difference. So he asks the question, what commandment is the foremost of all? There's over 600 commandments in the Old Testament. What's number one, Jesus? Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So for Jesus, two commandments summarize the entirety of the Old Testament. Love God and love your neighbor. Now here I want to stress that the order of operations is important. You all know about order of operations, right? You remember your mathematics class. In mathematics, you perform multiplication before addition. And you perform exponents before you do subtraction. And you do stuff in parenthesis before anything else, right? Here, there is an order of operations for the love. We must love God first and build our love for neighbor out from that love. And the reason is quite simple. Apart from God, we don't know what love is. We have no way to know what love is or how to love. We're left to our own, our own ideas, and we're going to get it wrong. And ultimately, getting it wrong will do people harm because we'll be loving them with human love rather than with God's love. And as we saw just a few weeks ago, we talked about compassion. Human love leads to burnout and fatigue and despair. You can't do it on your own. We can only love one another truly when we're relying on the supernatural love of God. We can only keep the commandment when we have God's love filling us with power. We need his love to be able to love one another well. So just this past week, our staff has been reading a lovely book by Evelyn Underhill called The House of the Soul. And I'm about to read you a quote, and she's speaking of the stability of the Christian life, and she's drawing from the um, the destruction of the two houses passage from Matthew chapter 7. But listen as I read this for you now. She writes, The winds will blow and the floods come to the very end. Overwhelming events, wild gales of feeling and impulse will sweep around the walls. The doors will bang and windows rattle. The bitter, cold, and penetrating waters of disappointment and grief will rise. But the little house of your soul will stand firm 
if it is established on the solid rock of spiritual realism, not on the soft, easily dug ground of spiritual sentiment. Its foundations must go down into the invisible world of prayer. And here's the key phrase, something of the steadfastness of the unchanging must underlie our human changefulness. Something of the steadfastness of the unchanging must underlie our human changefulness. Your notes may say the word underline, and that's because I tried to dictate this quote into my computer and only found 18 of the errors that it created in the process. And I missed one or two. Underlie. But underline is probably good too. The steadfastness of God's love must underlie all the changefulness of our human loves. Because otherwise we'll be swept to and fro by our passions and our desires, by what we think is right, and we'll get it wrong. Human love is ever-changing. God's love is changeless and perfect. And we must have our connection to him if we are going to overcome in this difficult and frustrating world. But wait, you might have some questions. I've said that John wants us to abide to survive, abide so we can overcome. He wants us to overcome the world and false teaching and death itself. And I've identified three paths toward that overcoming, by believing, by receiving, and by keeping. But I can anticipate a question. PJ, how do believing, receiving, and keeping lead to conquering? Maybe the connections aren't quite clear to you. I think the answer is to look at the three things in reverse. If we are going to conquer the world, it will be because we love one another, because we love for God, and for our love for God and one another is stronger than our love for the world. Okay? If we're going to overcome, it's because we have a love that exceeds the love of other things. And if we're going to have the strength to love one another and our God, it's only because we're filled with the Holy Spirit who's motivating our lives, our loves. And if we're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, it will be because we have believed that Jesus rose from the dead and believe with the new community founded in his name. So, brothers and sisters, if you want to be victorious, if you want to win, if you want to be a conqueror in this world, to be an overcomer, then you've got to believe and you've got to receive and you've got to keep. We're coming to a close, and I'd like to invite our musicians to come back up while I bring some final words to us right now. I'm, um, I want to offer two ways to pray this morning as they come here. First, I think there's some of you in the room today who have heard the good news but have never believed it. You've heard, but you've not believed. You've got the stuff in your head, but you've never assented to it or claimed it or owned it as your own. And because you've never claimed it, you've never been filled with the Spirit and empowered with the life of God. And I want you to offer you the opportunity right now to speak to Jesus. So I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And if that's you, would you pray with me? Would you all bow your heads? This is the first response. Would you bow your heads and let's pray? If that's you, here's a prayer for you. Jesus, I have heard that you came. And I have heard that you died for me. And I've never really believed. Lord, today I believe that you died for me and rose to life again. Send your spirit to fill and seal me for eternal life. Amen. If you prayed this prayer today, can I please encourage you to speak to one of our pastoral staff after the service? You could talk to Paul or Bronwyn or Brendan. Where did Brendan go? Brendan or Adam? Find, they're all wearing lanyards. They're easy to find. Speak to one of them and let them encourage you in your first steps. But I said there were two ways to pray, and here's the second. Some of you believe, but you need to renew your belief. 
You've heard and believed and you've received the Spirit, but you've not leaned into the width of believing, nor into the obedience of loving God and your neighbor. Maybe you've been relying on your own power rather than God's. And because of this, you're neither abiding nor surviving. You're just kind of trudging along in faith. If that's you, you need more Spirit. And I want to invite you this morning to pray for more Holy Spirit. And if that's you and you want that renewal, would you bow your heads with me and pray this prayer? I'll pray it for all of us. Holy Spirit, come in a fresh way. Renew the seal on our hearts. Fill us with your supernatural love. Strengthen us in our love for God, our neighbors, and your church.